Okay, our guest today is Dr. Don Boudreau. Dr. Boudreau is a professor of economics and a former economics department chair at George Mason University. He specializes in globalization and trade, law and economics, and antitrust. He has a PhD in economics from Auburn University and a law degree from the University of Virginia. And he's got a mile-long list of other accolades and publications and books and all sorts of that stuff. And I hope you will check it out. But I really want to get right to it. This is just a, a great discussion about basic economics, which is way more interesting than you might think. At least that's what I've found over the last few years. And we talk about how economics sort of touches on the trades, meaning blue collar folks and, and working class people and some of the misconceptions that exist. And if not misconceptions, just some of the parts of economics that are not spelled out super clearly. You know, a bumper sticker doesn't always suffice. And lots of times a bumper sticker is all we get. So I really hope you enjoy this discussion. Without any further ado, Dr. Boudreaux. Dr. Boudreaux, thank you so much for joining us. I've really been looking forward to this for a long time, and I got a big list of questions about economics for you, but before we go there, I'd love to hear you. I'm sure you didn't come out of the womb as a fully trained economist, so I'd love to hear you give us some background and how you got to where you are now. Well, thanks for asking me that question. Like most people, I enjoy talking about myself. Um, I was born into a working class family in New Orleans in 1958. My dad dropped out of school in sixth grade and he was a bus driver when I was born, spent most of his career as a pipe fitter at a shipyard. And um, I, and I was in the oldest of my family. I wasn't interested in anything, at, at anything academic at all. I was interested in football, beer, and girls. And uh, <laughs> I was the oldest of my family. And I was in that generation where finally everyone was expected to at least try college. And so my mom said, well, go to college for one year. I did terribly in high school, so I've gotten to this college no one ever heard of, Nichols State University. It's in the swamps of South Louisiana. Huh. So I went, I thought I'd go. I'd chase girls, drink beer. I did both. I didn't catch any girls. I did drink a lot of beer. <laughs> Got the beer, though. <laughs> and uh, I, I came back from, from uh, at Christmas. I actually flunked the class because I didn't care. <laughs> I was going to work in the shipyard with my dad. And so I told my mom, I said, you know, it's not for me. I and you promised you'd go for a whole year. So we rejiggered the deal. And I went to school Monday, Wednesday, Friday and worked at the shipyard Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I had to get classes that meant only Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And I got into this class. I didn't know what it was called economics, but it met Monday and Wednesday only. So I'm in that class just to satisfy my mom's. <laughs> it was economics. I did, and, and, and I had the good fortune to grow up in the 1970s because in the 1970s, that awful decade, there were energy shortages all over, you know, the, the, the automobile, I, I waited countless times to buy gasoline in a long line. And uh, I'm in this economics class and I had a great teacher. Uh, she died a few years ago, Michelle Francois. And she said, she said, look what happens when the government controls the price of, of, of gasoline, when government prevents the price of gasoline from responding to the forces of supply and demand. You get shortages. And she looked at us and she says, do you remember those gasoline lines you waited back in in, in 1973? Uh, and I thought, yes. And it just 
the, I remember the date. It was actually January 17th, 1977. I consider it to be really the first day of my life. Uh, wow. like, and, and I just came out of my chair and I was just stunned at how beautiful this economic theory was. And I, I fell in love with economics that moment. And it, within a few months, I, I said, I want to get a graduate degree in this stuff. A few months after that, I wanted a PhD. Then I knew I wanted to devote my life to studying economics and teaching economics. It was it was a really a, sort of a road to Damascus moment for me. What, what's that been like as a, and we'll, maybe we'll stay about your career a little bit, but being around a shipyard and a working class family as a professor and an academic now, are are you... Do you still work with tools or have a workbench hobby on the side? Or has that been, was that an easy change to make? I can't imagine shipyards are the most fun, but for some of us, I don't know, people are just kind of called to work with their hands at times. What, what, what's that been like for you? So I, I, I never worked at the shipyard full time. My first jobs, I had summer jobs at the shipyard, but they okay. were always office jobs. Oh. And uh, I, re- I remember one, this is a summer in South Louisiana, so it's hellishly hot. And, yeah. And I remember one summer, 78, 79, maybe, I'm, I had this moped that, that, that I was driving around looking for lost pieces of steel. Shipyards are incredibly messy places. Yeah. I looked for lost pieces of steel. And I saw my father uh, de- dressed out in full, thick denim because he was welding something. And I realized then how hard that man worked to make a living. Yeah. He's out in 98 degree, 100% humidity weather. Yeah. Right, in the, right in the sun. Um, my dad worked. My dad was an uh, um, an amateur carpenter. He was very good at it. Oh. So too was his father. So too was my mother's father. Uh, and so I, I grew up around it. I, I learned to do a little bit of it. It never spoke to me very much. Um, yeah. uh, but fortunately, not for me, but fortunately for my son, it skipped a generation. So my son, <laughs> uh, who's studying physics, he loves carpentry. And so he's all wow. building stuff. He's building furniture. Uh, just he was home a few weeks ago uh, and he spent the week when he was home building a beautiful picnic table for some of his friends back in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he gets that from my father and his other grandfather. But oh, I'm sorry to say it's, it's, it's <laughs> I tell people I have I have skills with only two tools. A pad and a corkscrew. Let's talk about economics a bit. And to maybe to start, I know it's a social science and I always think of social sciences as fuzzier and less certain than physics or uh, biology or something. But maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Are there, are economic laws debated hotly or are there parts of it that are as you know, r- reliable as physics in that way, or how, how does it fall on, on as a science and how should we think about it? It's a really good question. There, there are debates among professional economists about that, that very issue. My opinion is this, and it's, it's an opinion that's shared by a large number, if not unanimously among, among economists. And that is, um, it, it is a science. And now it's not a it's not a it's not a a physical science in the sense that you can control easily all the variables or the variables are are, are simple. My son studies astronomy, and so you know you you know there are there are, you know there, we know how many stars that are excuse me how many um, planets are in the solar system, and they have fairly determinable uh, laws. Society is really complex. Um, in order to understand understand society, so we need to think about it rationally. We need to 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 be 
have our minds trained about what to look for. And uh, uh, so it's, it's very difficult in, in social science to conduct controlled experiments. So that's one way that it differs from, from physics or chemistry. I see. But it is a science in the sense that um, it, it's, you know, it, it's not built on dogma. It, it is, it's a search for understanding uh, without, it, it, with as few as possible biases. Um, it's, it's meant to uh, find understanding that can be generalized. So there, there are a few laws in economics, the most famous of which is among economists, is the law of demand. And it, it's, it makes sense. This is one reason I like economics, because, because the, the, the fundamentals of it are actually very, very straightforward. I'm not very smart. I'm really not. And, but but I, I can get the basic laws of economics. And so the law of demand says all other things equal. And we know in reality all the things are always changing. But if you hold everything else equal, the, the more it costs you to take some action, the less likely you are to take that action, right? which means that, you know, if you walk into the supermarket and you see that the price of paper towels is higher than you expected, you might buy fewer paper towels than you otherwise would have bought. Or in the opposite, if they're lower, you might buy, buy more. You're thinking about going on a hike and then you look outside and the weather is a lot worse than you thought. It's a lot colder or the snow is a lot heavier. It makes it more costly for you to take the hike, so you might not do it. It's a pretty general point. It's a pretty general observation about, about yeah. human activity and the way humans choose. Yeah, it's not debatable. <laughs> yeah, it, well, you'd be surprised if some economists. <laughs> but, but so, what economics, when done well, takes these. I, I agree with you. Actually, it's really not debatable. How, how can how can anyone dispute that? Yeah, um, but takes that and a number. It's a handful of other fairly straightforward uh, observations about reality and, and, and human nature, and. It, it, and, and tries to, to infer from that some larger points about the way the economy works. So it's a science in that it's a search for truth, unbiased, um, it, with the recognition that what we say about reality has to somehow correspond to reality. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe before we leave just the profession of economics, what, what is it besides teaching like yourself that economists are hired to do and who pays them for people who are professional economists? Uh, so most people with PhDs in economics, um, oh, the biggest chunk of them are academics. So they, they teach, uh, they do research in, in, in research universities. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of others uh, work for the government a tiny handful work for private corporations, but private corporations don't have much use for, for economists because contrary to what a lot of people think, uh, we don't have the ability to predict what the demand for steel is going to be next year or the price of gold is going to be. I always tell people, if I could do that, I would, as much as I love teaching economics, I would become rich overnight by making these predictions <laughs> for a few weeks. I'd, yeah. I'd have a trillion dollars in my bank account and, and, and yeah. I'd be retired. Uh, yeah. leading a leisurely life. So it, 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 it's very difficult for economists to do things like, like, like that. Um, most, it's, economics is a very popular major as for undergraduates. Yeah, that makes sense. Go to law school afterwards or something like that. Exactly. So, so you know, some go on to get graduate degrees in economics. Many just go on to, you know, work for a company or 
Unlike accounting, unlike nursing, unlike yeah. electrical engineering, economics doesn't give you a whole lot of, of practical skills that you can immediately apply to a, a, another job. But like a lot of other good majors, it does give you, so it's called a discipline. And, and, and what that means in this take case is it gives you a, the, if you, if you be, become an economics major and, you, and you're successful at it as an undergraduate, it shows you have the discipline to master an analytic yeah. subject. And that means you, yeah. can, you can be trained and you can learn other, other, other things. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Okay. Um, so about tradesmen, tradesmen are used to specialization. That's pretty much what it's all about, you know, figuring out a trade. And sometimes they get just absurdly narrow in what they do. Like somebody will show up and all they do is, I don't know, like cut concrete or something, you know, like with one tool. And I know that that happens to some extent globally or, or even like regionally in the U.S. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. And is there a, is that an apt comparison with the way countries trade and exchange with how tradesmen focus and specialize on something? And, and maybe before you answer that, I know that international trade and this type of question is sort of your expertise, if I, if I, um, if I know. So maybe tell people how it is you came to be interested in that part of economics. Um, <laughs> I, I have to say, uh, you're like my favorite interviewer ever. You're, you're, like, you're asking all, right. all the questions that I just love to be asked. And, and, okay, good deal. Uh, um, he, he, one of the early things, you know, after I got introduced to economics as a young man, I was 18. And then I had the good fortune because I had this great teacher. And she told me about this essay called I Pencil, which happened to be written the year I was born, 1958. And it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful story. Uh, and and it's, 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 it's told from the standpoint of the pencil. So you get this pencil telling the story, I Pencil. And, but what the story tells is, a simple pencil. I happen to have one here by coincidence. An ordinary pencil, right? And uh, uh, this pencil. They think of all the the effort that went into this pencil, and it's so much effort and human creativity and knowledge went into the, making this one pencil that no human being could possibly begin to have all the knowledge necessary to make the pencil. I mean, it, 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 I know it's made out of cedar wood. I've actually visited pencil factories in the past, but. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, but uh, so, you know, if one person would have all the knowledge, this person would have to know, you know, where to find a cedar tree. That's easy. But then, okay, how do you turn the cedar tree into this nice octagonal shaped shaft with a right. with a hole down down the middle? Well, you need a saw or an axe. So that means you got to know where to find iron ore. You have to know how to get the iron ore out of the ground. You have to know how to smelt it and turn it into a blade or uh, of some sort. Then you have to know how to use it. And then, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then, and then, this of course is in clay. It's it's graphite and 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 I'm excuse me, it's in, it's, it isn't lead. It's graphite and clay. So you'd have to know where to find graphite, where to find clay, where to find the bauxite to make the aluminum to make the ferrule that holds the eraser onto the shaft of the pencil. Where to? This is probably a petroleum-based paint. Could be linseed oil, I suppose. But where, you know, where to? How to get oil? How to drill for oil? How to make the, the drill bit? This pencil is literally. Literally, the, pro the, the product of hundreds of millions of people from around the world whose efforts went into making this one pencil. So for 10 cents, 10 cents, yeah. you can get something that literally required the yeah. effort of millions of people from around the globe to make, yeah. to make this pencil. And so the, the degree of specialization in 
ordinary things. So forget about really complex things like, you know, F F ten pickup F one hundred pickup trucks or 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 the microphone that 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 you're using or the computer that I'm using, uh, right? Uh, or uh, you know, this, uh, my smartphone or smartphone. Even right. things like pencils require an yeah. immense amount of specialization, and right. somehow it all comes together. And, and, and that's what economics is about, by the way. I think ultimately is explaining how all this coordination happens because obviously most of the people whose efforts went into making this pencil, they weren't aware that they were going to make, that their efforts would, part of the result would be, would be a pencil. The person who went out to, to, you know, explore for iron ore wasn't thinking, I better do this. So Don Boudreau can have a pencil to show uh, (laughs) uh, one one day when he's doing a a video cast. Um, Mm -hmm. And so economics is about understanding how that happens. So the thing that, 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 that has always impressed me, about the real about the world we live in is how astonishingly complex it is and how deep the division of labor is. The founder of economics is one of my favorite people ever. He's a Scottish moral philosopher who lived from he was born in 1723, died in 1790. His name's Adam Smith. Hmm. Uh, a very famous philosopher. And hmm. so he explains the title of his book is An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. He's saying, what what causes nations to be wealthy? And he says, it's a thousand page book, but he gives the answer in the first sentence. He said, what we, what we call specializations, the division of labor. And he says, the more specialized people are, the, the greater the size of the economic pie. Uh, and, 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 and so he sought to encourage a, a, a world in which people are allowed to specialize as much as possible, use their creativity as much as possible. And fortunately, it's not perfect, of course, but fortunately, you and I are lucky enough to live in a, a, a time and place where we can tap into, when we do it every day of our lives, we, can, we tap into literally the effort and specialization and unique knowledge of a, at least a billion people every day, only a tiny fraction of, of which we know. I tell my students, um, I teach mostly 18-year-olds, uh, I tell my students at the beginning of the, cl- of the course, I said, you know, you know, one of the differences between our lives today and the lives of almost all of our ancestors is that if you go back 300, 400, 500 years ago to a, a, a medieval village and you were consuming something, you didn't have much to consume, but, you know, you had a you had a pot, you had a, you know, a coat, you had a pair of shoes, you had a hut, um, you had a maybe a slab of meat if you were lucky, you had a loaf of bread. You either made that thing yourself or you knew the person or persons who made it. Uh, and, 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 and everything that was made is something that the human mind could comprehend. I know how to, I, I'll grab clay out of the ground and I'll, 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 make, I'll make a piece of pottery out of it. And today, today, nothing that we consume, virtually nothing, but nothing, just think what you consume on a daily basis and ask, uh, first of all, could, could you make it yourself? And I don't mean make it by going to the hardware store and hammering the pieces. I mean, make it from, literally from scratch. Mm-hmm. And the answer is no. And so each of us every day is dependent upon billions of people from mm-hmm. around the world. Now, some people find this to be scary. I find it to be just mind-bogglingly wonderful. Uh, it, yeah. it's, it's just 
I'm, I have coffee here. I have a computer. I have this pencil. I have my reading glasses over there. I have yeah. artificial lighting. I have indoor plumbing. I don't know the identity of anyone who did these things, mm -hmm. but there are these skilled people out there who know who each of whom knows how to do really well one of the one of these tasks. Um, yeah. I, uh, about a, two weeks ago, I have a patio door. I live in a condo. A patio door going out and and the door, the lock on the door broke. So I called the locksmith and I, I had no idea how complex this door mechanism was, but this guy worked for about six hours and just his skill at doing what he did. And we had a really good conversation about, about, you know, he, he loves being a locksmith and the, the challenges of, he compared being a locksmith to being a surgeon. So you, mm -hmm. you really can't see what's in there. You got to kind of infer. Yeah. It. And it was really fascinating. And so I, 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 I love specialization. I celebrate it uh, selfishly because it's it's it, it's what makes modern life possible. Yeah, it's not just that you and I have all these things around us, but everyone is competing who can get it to us the cheapest and for the least amount of money. So we win in always. Well, I'm kind of torn on this, or at least there's a a conflict because I do feel. A, a type of guilt when I am buying a product that's made in China, let's say. And a lot of times you don't have a choice because so much of like the tools and things we use, that's where they come from. So, but there are other things where I will hire like with our, our podcast and our YouTube channel, sometimes like a, a graphic designer or an engineer, a, a, a draftsman or things. And with these online websites, now you can hire people in other countries. And I've done that a lot. And I, I, I feel a type of responsibility for the i don't know the the people in the u.s tradesmen and skilled people who are not getting that work and the most visible example is the towns in the midwest that are shut down and industries that are totally gone so how do you look at that i mean there's obviously a, a consequence or a byproduct to this and how how do how should we think about that i'm here to relieve your guilt just you, you just cast it away do not feel guilty okay. um so uh, look, losing a job is never pleasant for for anyone. Um, but I'll share some facts with you in just a moment. But um, uh, nearly every job that exists today it, it exists because of 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 trade. And um, uh, if you, if we and we can with tariffs and import restrictions. We can protect particular jobs in the U.S. So, so let's use steel, for example. So you have people working in a steel mill in, in uh, 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 Ohio or Pennsylvania or Alabama. And when we buy more steel from uh, Brazil and China, obviously that means lower demand for American-made steel. Mm -hmm. That means fewer jobs in the steel industry. That means people lose their jobs in the steel industry. And, of course, that, that we should feel sorry for such people. It's not pleasant for that to happen. Uh, but, and, but that's to see only one part of the story. So now if we, you should ask, well, what do the foreigners do with the money that they earn when they sell us steel? They're not selling us the steel because they, they love us. They're not selling us the steel because they want to accumulate monochrome portraits of dead American statesmen. Um, uh, they're, they're selling us the steel because they want to spend their dollars in America. So those dollars always return to America, and they do, either as demand for our exports or as investment in America. Mm -hmm. When they return, 
uh, to America, they employ people. It's a little more difficult to see where they employ people because it's, it's much more spread out. You can see yeah. the imports from, from Brazil, the steel imports from Brazil and China, and you can see the, the particular workers who lose their jobs. It's more difficult yeah. to see the workers who, who get jobs because of the, the imports. And another thing to keep in mind, when we buy foreign goods, I'm sure one reason why you patronize some, some non-Americans when you buy things is because they give you a better deal. That means your money goes yeah. farther. That means, yeah. you have, that means you have money to spend on other things that you otherwise would not have money to spend on. So you're creating jobs there. So if you stop doing that, and if we protect American steel workers, to return to my example, from foreign competition, we can do that, and those workers have benefited, but recognize that there are some other workers who are harmed. And I don't see any reason why we should, why we, sh why the workers who are harmed, let's say in the lumber industry, because the U.S. is a major exporter of lumber. Right. Uh, actually, I use lumber. That's my go-to example when I'm when I give this example in class. Um, uh, I don't see any reason why we should favor the steel worker over the workers in the in the lumber industry. And part of the deal of being being a member of modern society and enjoying the immense fruit of modern society is that the consumer is king. The economy exists to satisfy consumption desires. This doesn't, this doesn't mean like a lot of people interpret it to me. It doesn't mean frivolous things like, you know, his and her, you know, gold covered jacuzzis and private, it means, you know, more and better food, more, better housing, you know, lead yeah. more, better education. Uh, obviously some things are frivolous, uh, but but the, this is the deal, right? Producers, including workers, work to satisfy the demands of consumers, and 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 if they if they don't satisfy the demands of consumers, then they should do something else. And I know that's easier said than done. Yeah. Um, uh, but if we don't have that, if if we lived in a world in which producers were guaranteed their markets. If we lived in a world in which just because you chose to buy something from one producer at one point, you then become committed to sticking to buying from that producer for the rest of time. If we lived in that world, there'd be no economic growth. Uh, there'd be no economic change. We would, we, I like telling my students, uh, back when the Declaration of Independence was signed, um, depending on how you count, between 80 and 90 Americans out of 100 worked in agriculture. That means, at most, at most, we could afford to have twenty Americans do something other than grow food. Eighty, at least eighty of them had to work in agriculture, wow. and so mechanization came along, which and it destroyed agricultural jobs. Today, it's about one and a half percent of American workers work in agriculture. Well, we could return, <laughs> or we, we could have, if two hundred years ago we had prevented. Um, or 240 years ago, we had prevented uh, technological advances and some trade advances from, from destroying agricultural jobs, we could have protected those, those agricultural jobs. And our standard of living would be roughly what the standard of living was in 1776. Yeah. Not bad by 1776 standards, but pretty miserable by our standards. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, There's probably been factories in the U.S. of, let's say, I don't know, like tube televisions or transistor radios and I'm glad that those factories are out of business because we don't want to make those old technologies anymore. And there were probably some skilled workers there who lost their job, but 
what are you going to do? Like, we don't we don't want transistor radios anymore. No, that 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 that's exactly right. And and let me also take this opportunity to say a lot a lot of people they 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 get basic facts wrong. Some myths just emerge and they take on a life of their own. So one myth that's been prevalent for quite some time is that America doesn't make things anymore. We don't make things anymore. Our, our, our manufacturing base has been hollowed out. Yeah. Well, look at the data, publicly available data, uh, available at various sources. American manufacturing output measured in inflation-adjusted dollars, the dollar value of American manufacturing output, hit a peak right before the 2009 recession. Of course, it went down during recession, and it started going back up. It was nearing a peak again just before COVID kicked in. So it's we're we're, we're producing pretty much now as or at least prior to COVID um, as manufacturing output, manufacturing output as much as we've ever produced. Our manufacturing capacity, the measure of what what our factories are capable of producing, uh, is. It, well, again, pre-COVID, February of 2020, was at an all-time high. Now, wow. Yeah, and, and this is not a secret to anyone who knows the data. It's right there in the data. But wow. it's not convenient for politicians to say this. Because if yeah. you say this, well, but the, well, there's no problem to solve. Politicians need problems to solve, right? Yeah. And so they say, well, you know, uh, we're, we're actually manufacturing quite a lot. Uh, our manufacture, our industrial capacity is at an all-time high. Nothing here for me to do. So, yeah. and, and, and for some reason, people don't like this sort of good news. Now, the reason people have this misperception about <laughs> manufacturing is manufacturing employment is falling. It, manufacturing employment hit, and absolute numbers hit an all-time high. Oh. In, I think it was June of 79. And uh, as a percentage of the workforce, it was in the 1950s that it hit an all-time high. What's happened... To manufacturing employment, what's happening now to manufacturing employment is what happened to agricultural employment 150 or so years ago. So it was once a heavily labor-intensive uh, occupation, uh, you, know, you know, industry, and then technology comes along, and now we get a lot more output, agricultural output per worker. That's been happening in manufacturing for the past several decades. Uh, technology is improving so so much that. We get a lot more manufacturing output per worker, so we need fewer workers. That releases workers to do other things. And so we it, it's a good thing, in my view, uh, and I'm quite sure this is correct. It's a good thing. We don't need the portion of Americans working in factories that were working in factories when I was born in 1958 or that were working in factories in the late 1970s or early 1980s. We're, we're getting more and better output. From, from those factories with fewer and fewer workers, thus leaving those workers free to do other things. They can become web designers, yeah. deep, special, deep medical specialists, medical researchers. Um, yeah. That's how an economy, that's how an economy grows. And, 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 and I, again, I, I, I sympathize with, with the people, with people who, who lose jobs. Of course, it's, I remember my, my father very often, well, not very often, Three or four times growing up, my dad was laid off from his job at the shipyard. It's not it's not easy. Uh, he always got it back. Um, lucky for him and us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if if we don't endure job losses, if we literally protect all jobs, then we don't grow. And who does not want to grow? Um, and and often it said we got to we, we should care about our children. I, I like caring about our children. I think that's right. 
And so if we were to freeze everything today, even if we could do it, if we freeze everything today where it is to make sure that no one loses a job, whether to technology, whether to trade, to regardless of the reason, uh, maybe we could do that. But then we're denying our children the fruits of the economic growth that, that we thereby prevent. And I think all of us today are pretty pleased that our ancestors of 60, 70, 80 years ago didn't freeze things in place so that mm-hmm. we have the same standard of living that Americans enjoyed in 1945. Yeah, even just in 1945, our life is incomparable. And and that's even for the lowest tier of people. We, you know, are, the homes are warmer and there's probably going to be air conditioning and even like the most basic housing, at least in Phoenix, where I used to live, there was. And it's it's definitely a better life than, than 1945. So that's also probably not debatable. The most the, the 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 thing that I wrote that got the most views um, is uh, an, a little blog post I wrote in February of 2016. I just wrote it on a lark. I just had this mental experiment that hit me, and I said, "Well, who is the most who is the richest man in 1916? 100 years early? Well, it was John D. Rockefeller." Mm-hmm. It was worth probably, you know, in today's dollars, well over a billion dollars, right? Not a billion in 1916 dollars, but he was, wow. old, right? he was, he was super. He's probably the first American billionaire put into modern dollars, right? Okay. So he's got, he's got home, homes in, in on Newport, Rhode Island. He's, you know, he's got his private train car. And so I said, do a mental experiment. How much would you have to be paid to, go back and live like Rockefeller in 1916 if you had Rockefeller's wealth. Well, you'd have a lot, you'd have a really nice house overlooking the, the Atlantic Ocean in, in, yeah. in, in Rhode Island. That, that'd be nice, right? Yeah. Um, you, uh, you, you would barely have, air, barely have air conditioning. Air conditioning is just coming around. Certainly most of the places you visited, your friends, your, your railroad car would not have had air conditioning. Uh, yeah. Your food selection would be a lot worse. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have antibiotics. Uh, if you got infected, you know, in 1924, the 16-year-old son of the sitting president of the United States, so Calvin Coolidge Jr. was playing tennis on the White House lawn. He got a blister from playing tennis. He died a week later. The president of the United States lost his 16-year-old son to a staph infection in 1924 because there was no, there were no antibiotics. Whoa, that really puts it into perspective. The antibiotics didn't come, you know, they were invented. Alexander Fleming discovered them accidentally in 1928. They really didn't become widely produced until World War II. So oh, Johnny wow. Rockefeller wouldn't have had any antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, pain relievers were not what they are today. Uh, if he wanted to get from New York to California, he could do it. He could do it privately, but it would take him several days. He'd have to get into his private railroad car and chug along. Uh, he, we can get there in hours. Uh, he yeah. couldn't pick up. Uh, he couldn't pick up a, a cell phone without mm-hmm. attached to a wire and 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 make a, a video call to somebody. He certainly couldn't do what you and I are doing right. right here. I think if you do a mental experiment, I, I think this. I, I'm convinced. I, I know for me, uh, I am materially richer mm-hmm. than was John D. Rockefeller just a hundred years ago. I am richer, and I'm an ordinary American. But if there's one economic lesson you could kind of hammer into the head of the ordinary American, is this what it would be, this principle, or would it be something else? Understand that the world is a lot more complex 
than it appears to be. We, we are on the surface, what we see, what we perceive. And you walk into the store and you see, you know, cans of beans and fresh broccoli and, and you see, you know, the tools at, 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 at Home Depot and the lumber. You see all that, right? But behind all that is an enormously complex web of commercial relationships. Mm-hmm. And the notion that, that you or anyone, I don't care, this person could have 10 Nobel Prizes in economics, right? Um, that can, can begin to comprehend the logic of, or, or the details of how all those things mesh together is, 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 just, is, is just wrong. The world's much more complex than it appears, but, but, but we, we have these words and we, we see things and it looks a lot simpler. And so some politician comes along and says, you know, here, here's, here's a problem. Sometimes it's a real problem. Sometimes it's a fake problem. Here's a problem. And I have a solution and it sounds so good, right? Oh yeah, it's, it, yeah that thing's out of whack. I'm going to let this man or woman and, and, and he or she's going to, going to fix the problem. Problem solved. And what this way of thinking about problems overlooks is underneath the problem that this person's whacking with his or her policy hammer is a whole bunch of complex interactions that, that, and the effects of that whacking are going to, going to ripple through and, and very often cause some unintended damage. So I, I, I think it's, just, it's a very general lesson. Just understand that reality is, particularly economic reality is vastly more complex than it it appears and that politicians and pundits make it out to be. Well, even for regular man, like you want to feel like you understand something. And so as soon as you kind of hear a really logical and compelling argument, we could be on any side. It's, it's like, okay, good. Now I know that you can kind of, it's easy to just file it away and be like, I know that. And it's, it's harder to be less confident sort of. So at least for, at least for me, it is a complicated world. Your, your point stands. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, but it's it's a it it's it's a wonderful world. I mean, we we I, I guess maybe the second lesson I would say is you know, when when young people, when I talk to high school students and my, my own freshman students, uh, was as I do a lot. Uh, I, I I remind them, you know, it's a, it's a, I want you to appreciate the world that you live. You, you live yeah. in. You are, you are, you know, most of these people, I just met them for the first time. So we don't know each other. So, but I know just the fact that you hear my, you, you are hearing my voice. You are among the wealthiest human beings ever to live. Your life expectancy is at an all time yeah. high, right? Mm. You are, a, you, you, here's, a, here's another, I like, I like talking about this. You can tell Americans born after World War II, which include you and me, Americans born after World War II, we're the first people in history who can expect to keep our teeth, our natural teeth, into our 80s. The world has improved in all of these types of ways. Are you optimistic that the future is also bright? Because it's easy to, if not feel negative, but a a lot of the news is so bleak and it sort of paints the future as dark and the past as this beautiful time. Do you have any strong feelings about outlook? Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID mm-hmm. um, and, and pre the reaction to COVID, uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm highly optimistic. That doesn't mean I think the world's perfect. It doesn't mean there are problems that are real and there aren't problems that should be addressed. And 
reasonable people can debate about the best way to address the problems and, and the order in which they should be addressed. Of course, you know, we, we're always going to live in an imperfect reality. Um, but the trend has been pretty steadily upward in terms of the quality of human life. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the recipe for that is, it's not that complicated. The recipe is, uh, I'd always like more, but, but private property rights, a rule of law, economic freedom, freedom to enter an industry, freedom as a consumer to spend your, your in, the income that you earn as you choose. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the, and, and just, you know, don't, don't, don't take other people's stuff. Don't hit other people. So when you have that kind of, of, of market, free market society, mm -hmm. people become creative and, and they want to use their creativity to better themselves, but they can only better themselves by making life better for, for everyone else. Uh, I mentioned, yeah. I mentioned earlier that economics was founded by this guy named Adam Smith and he has his famous, one of his famous lines is, is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. And what he means yeah. by that is that, is that, you know, the, the butcher cuts the meat and he does it. He's not a bad person, but the, he, let's face it. He cuts the meat because he wants to make a living, but you benefit from it. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a good thing. And so in a market society, we each benefit ourselves by helping other people. What could be more beautiful than that. I mean, I think it's just yeah. an amazing thing and it's worked. So I'm astonished now that socialism seems to be a thing again. So I'm old enough to remember when the Soviet Union was real. I, I remember very clearly when the, when the Berlin Wall fell, what, 31 years ago, almost. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, now young people, they think, well, oh, we need is socialism. History shows no example, none, not one, not one example of socialism working. Uh, people think Sweden is socialist. Sweden's not socialist. Sweden has a has a has a large uh, redistributed welfare state, um, uh, one too large for for my standard. But Sweden has a market economy, private property, um, uh, rule of law, and uh, 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 but true socialism it's 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 never worked. So maybe my last question on that note, Karl Marx was an economist. Is there anything that he taught that was helpful or insightful or that you, uh, you think is worth, uh, I don't know, thinking about, or is he, is it just too, too tragic that he led the world to communism and not worth even giving him that? I think so he, much attention? Yeah, I am no fan of, of, of Karl Marx. When I was in graduate school at NYU years ago, I, I took a class from a Marxist economist. Uh, in Marxian economics, because I, I knew that that's I, I needed to be disciplined to read it, so I took this class yeah. and, and, and read Marx. And I mean, look, the guy wrote a lot, so you can't write as much as he wrote without having penned a few sentences that are that are, are correct. He he I think, actually, I think his his best book. He had to pick out one, but the one that I find least least bad is the Communist Manifesto. But he wrote oh, well. forty eight with, with well because. Marx did recognize the the enormous benefit that capitalism brought to humanity, right? And so parts of the Communist Manifesto are are this 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 story of of how uh, capitalism just completely you know upended the medieval royalist 
uh, feudal system and then just change the world for the better. Um, uh, of course, Marx, you know, he eventually said, well, you know, it's built on the backs of, 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 of workers and it was not destined to last. And, you know, the, the oligarchs are continuing to get rich. I think he went way, way astray. But he did, he did early on understand the, 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 the benefits of early capitalism. Um, he's, he, um, he had too static a view of, I think he had, a, his, he shares this with a lot of people, but maybe a lot of people get it from him. Um, I wouldn't say it's his own, it's certainly not his only error. I wouldn't even say it's his most fundamental error, but it's right up there with his errors, mistakes. He believed that he, he wrote about capital as if it like automatically grows. So, so if if, if you if you invest, you, your, your money just sort of automatically in, increases. You know, I will tell that to business people whose businesses have gone bankrupt. Yeah. Uh, a lot of businesses that you know really booming, successful today, and you know tomorrow they're they're bankrupt. Uh, capital by here I mean you know the you know machines and factories and businesses. These things don't automatically earn money. You, you have to you have to manage them properly. You have to keep them up to date. If you don't, uh, then then they're going to just the, the the value is going to be dissipated. And so and, and Marx didn't get that. He wrote as if capital is just a thing that keeps growing automatically. Got it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I want to ask you one question, and as a part of this, maybe let our listeners know where they can read more of your work and, and listen to you and such. And the question is for someone who's maybe hearing some of these thoughts for the first time, the way you did as a, when you were younger um, from your, that professor, uh, what, what books or podcasts or blogs could someone check out to learn more about economics? I remember when I took my a class in school economics thinking, how did nobody ever explain this to me? This is, it's like the way it's like the way a car works. It's like, I, that's really cool. How did I not know that? So, how how what would you point people, and then let us know um, where they can find more of your work. So, uh, my, my, if the, most of my work appears in my blog. It's Cafe Hayek, uh, C A F E H A Y E K dot com. It's named after a, a Nobel Prize winning economist. Right. And uh, I, I have most of my stuff is at at an introductory level. I don't write. Then it's not most of it's not stuff written for my fellow economists. It's written for general. Oh, perfect. Um, uh, the, some of the best books, um, the works of, of the economist Thomas Sowell are, are very good. He's, he's very old now, but he's, he's at the Hoover Institution down at Stanford. Um, uh, there is a 19th century French economist uh, named Frederick Bastiat, B-A-S-T-A-I-T, uh, an unbelievably fun read and you learn a lot from it. Oh, it's old. And so if you can find anything by Bastiat and he translates well into English, and he's always mm-hmm. been translated into English and he's just such a joy to read. He's, he's humorous. Uh, he's accessible. Uh, even though it was written in the early, in the first half of the 19th century, it's still relevant to today. He uses French examples, but they apply uh, today. One of the most famous books, it's a little bit dated now, but not too much, is a book by a man named Henry Hazlitt called Economics in One Lesson. It was published in 1947. It's still in print, and, 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 and it is true to its name. It's Economics in, in One Lesson. And then I would go to a website 
It's uh, the Econ Live website, E-C-O-N-L-I-B. Mm. I think it's .org, or maybe it's, it could be .com. And they, it has a, an entire array of resources. Um, it has something called the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics. It's got a blog called EconLog, which is generally very, very, very good. I don't blog for it, but some of my friends do. Uh, it's, it's got links to books, uh, and and that's a that's a really nice place to to begin. Well, thank you so much. This has really been great, and it, it truly is interesting. And thanks for taking the time to speak to our audience, and and we'll uh, keep an eye on future. Uh, or articles, I guess, from your Cafe Hayek and um, Dr. Boudreau. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure.